Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue last radio hour of the week is underway. All things Hillsdale. Go over to hillsdale.edu. Sign up for yeah, Stephen Smith has taught a couple of great courses, video courses. Dr. Arn has taught many uh, of the great, brilliant minds at Hillsdale are at work 24-7 at your beck and call at hillsdale.edu. Dr. Arn, um, I remember from the history of the English-speaking people, uh, the Agincourt description, I think I probably read it a hundred times. I make my law students read much of that book. And something I'm thinking about proposing to you is actually having our audience read it with us in a series of conversations, because it does provide a grounding in how we got here to this moment, how the American experience happened. And I was just rereading his his short chapter on the American Constitution, which is a better 12 pages than anyone in D.C. currently has a grasp of other than perhaps Supreme Court justices. But I digress. This is the two battles segment. Uh, and so we got to get into those two battles. I don't know how they stage this. It must be amazing, uh, Stephen Smith, to see it performed live. I have not. Well, I think this is where film just has such a huge advantage. Yes. I mean, you know, the chorus, the chorus calls attention to the outrage of trying to represent something like a great battle on the little stage. Um, and so the chorus is well aware that it could strike someone as ridiculous to think, oh, this is Agincourt, or this is, you know, <laughs> and these are like five guys with swords. And we've all seen this right in the theater where you, what are you going to do? It's, it's, a, it's a stage, it's live. Yeah. Are you supposed to have thousands of troops on stage? So the chorus is aware of this, and that's where I think film is really just awesome. I mean, I I love well to to imagine Agincourt as Churchill describes it is to imagine a sudden, decisive, overwhelming victory by long. I, it's just hard to believe uh, the route so quick and so final. Yeah, yeah. Uh, by the way, uh, imagine a major battle on a small stage. That's what uh, uh, poetry does. And so even just Shakespeare's words recall that battle. I mean, you know, just, just reading it on a page, taking up, you know, six inches of space. And so uh, the, everything is a microcosm, right? And, 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 and so, yeah, and sure enough, in the play, I mean... And my opinion is you judge Shakespeare plays by their faithfulness. And the faithfulness means, first, saying the words, and second, acting as the people would act while saying the words. And the best, uh, Henry V, have the advantage over a stage play that you can have thousands of troops, but they have, well, they don't really actually have thousands, they have hundreds. But, uh, but, but against that, in the end, it's good if it's like it was. <laughs> did you, and, you know, did you, I think the Kenneth Branagh one is just awesome, the way they stage that. Did you, by the way, have, have your family in England commented on Dunkirk, the movie? Uh, well, uh, the ones who, uh, my, my father-in-law, who was there on the, until the last day, he was dead. And uh, I haven't talked to my wife's siblings about it, but I resent one thing about it very much. And that is, first of all, uh, it, there are photographs of the beach. The beach was crowded. It was not a single line of people, right, three or four different places. And second of all, uh, uh, my father-in-law was attached to the Coldstream Guards, which is one of the five guards regiments. He was a, he was a colonel in the Territorial Army as his father before him. 
And the reason he had such a hard war, you know, because he was last day of leaving Dunkirk, and then he was a POW of Japan for three and a half years, is because he went everywhere with the Coldstream Guards. Well, he reports that they would get up every morning and drill. Uh, in other words, they, it was just like they were in the barracks in wartime. And that means they weren't. There wasn't anybody. Uh, or, Drifting around disorganized and, right, and somber. Right, not what's what, right? Yeah. They kept themselves in order, and that's one reason they got away, so many of them. Most so of that's them also saw. the disadvantage of film. There's an advantage yeah. that you can be epic, but you can also be epically wrong uh, in the portrayal of something. I think the World War I movies are that way. Back to Henry V, though. People are waiting for the MacGuffin, uh, the payoff, Stephen Smith, the great lines. <laughs> well, I mean, we get, them, we get them all in this part of the play. I mean, uh, at the first siege, um, you know, we hear once more unto the breach, dear friends, once more, uh, Henry's great uh, speech. And then in that siege, he also has another speech um, that he gives to the mayor of the town demanding surrender. And this is Harfleur. Um, you know, this is a moment where Hal's rhetorical firepower is again on complete display. In the first speech, he rouses the troops to fight. And in the second speech, he threatens the mayor with utter destruction if he doesn't surrender. And these are like that double quality I've been mentioning. Um, Hal's rousing speech is he tells his men you need to imitate the action of the tiger um, and, and they'll fight to the death. And then, and then in the second speech, he threatens the mayor by saying, you know, if you don't yield... You're going to be guilty in defense, and I can't be held responsible for what my troops will do. They're going to rape. They're going to pillage. They're going to mow down with liberty and conscience wide as hell. Well, this is why when the chorus said Caesar, Alexander, Mercury, and the mayor of every Christian king, I'm thinking, well, this is very Caesar-like. He, told, he repeatedly warned people, we will destroy everyone in the city and cut off the hands of everybody who raises an arm against us. And he did. And so this is that part of him, and he's Mercury-like, he's moving fast, but this is not the mirror of every Christian king. Well, this is the thing, right? What's the truth? Is Hal, is Hal a Caesar, or is Hal a Christian king? Um, is Hal a legitimate ruler? Is Hal a tyrant? That even comes up in Henry V. He says, we are no tyrant, we are a Christian king. So this is what he wants us to wonder over, and it's not so much raining on the parade of the play to bring up the double quality. It's really to do justice to the work. It's rousing, it's fiery, it's incredible rhetoric, and yet it has these undercurrents as well. And so what do you think about Hal's leadership? Is this good rhetoric? Is this um, necessary rhetoric? Is this iffy rhetoric? And then that, that, line to the mayor, you're going to be guilty in defense. One of the most interesting things Hal does in Henry V, one of his key moves, he has a way of making other people either be responsible for his decisions as a leader or share responsibility. So the churchmen at the beginning who say, yes, you can invade France. Okay, so they're, on, they, they're part of it. Um, the mayor, he'll be the cause of rape and pillage, not the troops. It's his fault. You know, so th these questions um, keep coming up, and it's one of Hal's key moves as a leader is to make these other people share the responsibility or be the responsible party for what happens next. He, he goes out in secret. We mentioned this last week. 
to to hear what the troops are saying. And what does he learn from that? From Bates, whom everyone's going to think is this is where the the name came in Downton Abbey, must have come from this, Bates and Williams. Well, yeah, okay. Um, He says to his friends, the other lords, you know, I in my bosom must debate a while. And then he kind of, I want to be alone, he tells them the night before. And then rather than being alone, he puts the cloak on and then goes off to see how the troops are doing. And this is a really remarkable sequence in the whole Henriad. He runs into Bates and Williams, and he defend, Henry defends the king. He says, the king's cause is just, it's honorable. And one of the ordinary guys says, well, that's more than we know. <laughs> and he says, we're going to, the ordinary guy says, we're going to die tomorrow. And the king will probably get ransomed and he'll go back to England. It'll be fine. But as for us, we're toast. We're toast. Huh. Yeah. So there's a critique of Henry that comes out of this exchange, especially from this guy, Williams. And what Williams is preoccupied with is the fundamental question, is this just or not? He says, if it's not, if it's just fine. If this war is not just, then the king, he says, is going to have a heavy reckoning to make on doomsday when all of the severed limbs and all the butchered bodies and, and all, of the, all of the muck of war, when it all comes up and says, you led us to France for no good reason, with no justice. And so Hal gets mad at this one um, and defends himself and says, Williams is wrong, um, Every soldier is responsible for himself. It's, just, it's very complicated. Theme. But then he he ends with a prayer. It's very interesting. Yeah. I think maybe the Williams got to him. And there, here's the Christian king as opposed to Caesar, Mercury, and, and Alexander. Well, I don't know who pointed this out first, but Williams is also William S. <laughs> right? William Shakespeare. Oh. Here, who knows? The guy's full of jokes. Um but anyways, um, the prayer and you know, prayer ends the scene. He prays to the god of battles to steal his soldier's heart, to possess them not with fear. But then most interestingly, Hugh, guess what he brings up in the prayer right before Agincourt? My father uh-huh. and what happened, how he got the crown. Now at the end of Henry the Fourth, part two, he said, I don't care, you got it it's your crown, it's my crown, it's fine. But here in this prayer he says, not today, O oh Lord, not today. Think upon the fault my father made. Well, sure, that makes sense, right? Don't yeah. don't visit justice on me today. <laughs> but see, what was funny, though, is with Shakespeare, Hugh, you gotta, you got to put things side by side in your judgment. So he says this right here, but back at the end of Henry IV, Part Two, what he said is, Father, no more about this. You took the crown by bad means. Stop. You, it's your crown. You gave it to me. It's legit. Flash forward to Agincourt, mm, not quite so clear. And now Hal's saying, oh, dear God, not today, not today. Well, powerful. Powerful. It, it, Remember the, the, the plot, right? So Richard II provokes uh, Hal's father, right? He seizes all his property. He exiles yes. him. It's really stupid what Richard II does. And so uh, there isn't much doubt that in the beginning... Uh, he has a just cause. But by the end, all of the people, all of the nobles who rallied to help him are turning against him, and he kills some of them, right? So it doesn't go well. And, and uh, you know, Hotspur is the son of one of the people who made Henry IV king. 
And so they're, you know, it's a, uh, it's a, when you get to mess, messing around with power and when the lines of legitimacy are unclear, right? That's, that's going on in American politics today. You bet you it is. Now, don't go anywhere, America. The final great. scene coming up back on the Hillsdale Dialogue. Except you can go Google Hugh Hewitt and Hillsdale, and it will sound, it'll take you right to uh, the first, the most recently uh, laid down edition. It'll be this one today by Saturday morning. And then just start listening. If you want the Shakespeare, drop back about eight weeks and just start there. If you want to go to the beginning, Homer, go there. This is the Hugh Hewitt Show. This is the five quarts in one gallon of radio time, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt, Dr. Arn, President of Hilldale College. Dean Stephen Smith is with me. We're at the final phases of Henry V, Shakespeare's great, great play. The Band of Brothers speeches, of course, maybe the best bit of Shakespeare known in America, do you think? Caesar's death oration by Anthony, but it's got to be this one. Well, I think it's probably the most memorized, well, among the most memorized of all Shakespeare. And um, and it's how, at his rhetorical, um, most powerful moment in the play. And he addresses both the leadership and the ordinary people. Even goes so far as to say, if you shed your blood with me today, you'll be my brother, no matter how vile you were before this. And he says, when we get back to England later in life, in the latter day, you're going to look back on these scars and say, thank God I fought with Harry on St. Christmas Day. So it's a very powerful speech. But notice something, Hugh. Hal directs the attention there to the the latter day back in England showing the scars enjoying yeah. the glory remembering the camaraderie what did Williams do the night before he wanted to talk about the latter day too but his latter day was doomsday it was judgment day Just, whoa the place is startling the way, it, the way it's made um, and so how unifies everyone they're going to, to fight and win let, let me ask you about the murder of the French prisoners, because uh, when I was reading a biography of Napoleon recently, he executed 3,000 prisoners at Gaza early in his tyranny. And you really don't, you, you don't execute prisoners. It's always morally ambiguous in, in Saving Private Ryan and every depiction of it in The Great Escape. Everyone recoils from the execution of prisoners. So what's it tell us about Henry V? Well, it tells us a lot about him and about how Shakespeare makes something in a frustrating way, but in a greatly provocative way. First, let me, let me throw something out there. I'm an admirer of the Kenneth Branagh film, too, as well. But did you notice anything about his depiction of the battle scenes? I do not he remember. Leaves out, yeah. he, he leaves out the pr- slaughter of the French prisoners. Oh, that's why we don't remember. Okay. Yeah, whoops. You know, uh, hold on. Can I cut that one out of there? Um, oh, wow. What a choice. Now, I... I think, okay, hold on, it's treated in some sense. However, um, not, not in the way Shakespeare presents it. So in the play, it's very confusing, and I always read this out loud with students and let them be confused, because the first thing Shakespeare shows us is Henry hearing an alarm and thinking that it means the French have re- got reinforcements. And then he gives the order, kill the prisoners. So that's version one. The scene clears. Two other leaders come onto the stage, 
and they they say, ah, you hear what the French did. Therefore, the king has most worthily ordered that the prisoners be killed. So the second version... A war crimes defense. Yeah, exactly. And he does not resolve this. He just puts it there. That's how he does it. Bam. Well, which is it? What, what, what did Henry, you know, in the notes I mentioned, you know, there are different ways to look at it. Is Henry simply, this is a war, and he thinks, oh my goodness, we're going to lose. I got to do anything I can to win. Um, or are, is the second view correct? That there, there was more to the decision, that it's justifiable. Um, but Shakespeare just throws it out there, and that's one of the last decisions we see from Hal in the play. What do you think that about that, Dr. Arn? Mm-hmm. But well, you also it's you have to contrast that in the Kenneth Branagh play, he plays up very much uh, the French breaking into the back and murdering the boys who are guarding the, the baggage. You see, well, so that's, that's the rationale. Yes, yeah. Uh, Branagh is partisan about yes, he is in a way that Shakespeare is not. Yes, it's it's a war cry. I think Churchill bemoans it. Uh, I can't. I don't have the book in front of me. I think he bemoans it. I can't recall. Yeah, I can't um, recall either. Doctor, you're exactly right. That that second version invokes the boys and the treatment of the luggage, and and that's the reason for Henry giving the order. But we just saw. In the yeah, we just, we, <laughs> So we got three minutes, Stephen Smith. We got to do Catherine. We we got one minute. Catherine and how the ideal leader. We got a lot of trouble on our hands then, Hugh. Um, <laughs> play is going to end. So England wins. Hal directs all the glory to God. And then the negotiations take up the rest of the play. Hal is going to um, demand Catherine as his, as his bride, as his queen. But he will woo her in a famous scene. And um, Catherine is a fascinating figure. Uh, she knows that the tongues of men are full of deceits. And she doesn't want Henry to kiss her because it's against the custom of France. And Henry basically tells her, don't you know that kings and queens can do anything they want to do? And so he's going to end the play uh, getting married to her and with peace negotiations that are successful. Now, all that said, the play ends with a last chorus. And rather than that rousing chorus we got throughout the play, we now have a sonnet and it laments the early death of Henry V and the return of war and civil destruction dated. All for naught. All for naught. But we will talk next week about the next play and we'll come back to this because it's not always not for naught. Dr. Larry Arnfred of Hillsdale College, Dean Stephen Smith of Hillsdale. Everything Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. Thank you. Marvelous hour. I'll talk to you on Monday, America, on the next Hugh Hewitt Show. You absolutely, positively need the truth. This is where you turn. This is the Hugh Hewitt Show. The following program is pre recorded. Bonjour. Hi, Canada. Hugh Hewitt from the West Coast. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. The last radio hour of the week, which is always on the Hugh Hewitt Show. Something important, something lasting, something that endures. 
Being uh, with Dr. Larry Arnn, president of Hillsdale College, and Dean Stephen Smith, professor of English at Hillsdale, talking about Shakespeare. It's been grand fun for me, and it will continue for many more weeks. You've got to go back to the iTunes page of the Hillsdale Dialogues. Just type in iTunes and Hillsdale Dialogues, and you'll get them all. Or go to hillsdale.edu and search around. You'll find them there as well. Last week, we didn't quite finish up. Henry the Fourth, Part Two, and we need to uh, Stephen Smith because it's a bridge to Henry Five. What happened at the end that we need to know about? Oh, just super briefly, uh, two important things: Hal is crowned king, and then he is going to publicly accept the Chief Justice as his kind of new father figure. He calls him a father unto my youth. To make a long story short, he and the Justice had had trouble in the past. He had even struck this guy. And now you can kind of see he's the monarch, and he doesn't want to be seen as against justice. So he accepts that guy as his new father. And then probably the most important human detail, the play ends with King Henry V now, how um, seeing Falstaff during his procession and banishing him. So he says, I know thee not, old man. I have long dreamt of such a kind of man as you, but being awake, I do despise my dream. Make your body less and your grace more. That's a funny way to put it. Yeah. I I banish you as I have done the rest of my misleaders. Come not near my person by 10 miles. Hmm. If you reform yourself, we'll talk. If not, nope. And he he leaves. Falstaff thinks he's just joking around. He doesn't really mean that he had to say that. Um, but, of course, um, Falstaff's heart is actually broken by this scene. And Henry the Fourth, Part Two, ends with um, the news that a little bird has already filled the ears of one man with the news that war with France is imminent. And then we're at Henry V. And that that little bird pleased the king? Yes. Uh, the music of the bird pleased the king. So what has Hal done very quickly... Um, even just as quickly as he put that crown on his head, he took his father's dying advice. Um, war with France is going to happen. So and now we're in, in Henry V. Before we do that, let's let's go back for the benefit of the Steelers fans and new listeners to the Hugh Hewitt Show and review where we where, how we got here, the three plays that got us here. Because Henry V may be the most watched play. Do you agree with me on that because of Brauna's movie? Oh, yeah, and it has so many good film versions. There's a Laurence Olivier, there's a Branagh, there's the new Hollow Crown that Dr. Arn mentioned last time. So a lot of film versions of this. It starts with Richard II, um, and Richard um, is deposed and then murdered. The middle two plays are Henry IV, one and two, and they feature Henry IV ruling England, but with all sorts of turbulence and storms and violence. Henry IV, who ends with his death, Hal becomes king, takes the justice as his new father figure, banishes Falstaff, and gets ready to invade France. Now, now Dr. Arn, will you remind me, my history of the English-speaking people is in is on the East, but I think Churchill held Henry IV in high regard. Oh, yeah. Well, both, both these Henrys, who have, you know, there's a mixed record in Shakespeare of these two. But they were both successful, very. And, you know, Henry V is more interesting. Churchill's opinion of Henry V is more interesting than of Henry IV because 
he glories in Henry V, and he thinks Britain should have got out of, Fran- out of France a long time before. And that's a strategic question, right? It, uh, Churchill sees, Shakespeare significantly sees, British history is attempting to build an island power without enemies on its border, and that meant they couldn't rule France. And, and uh, I, I'll tell a quick story. My mother-in-law, a great woman who was an Air Force plotter in the Second World War, uh, I took her to see the Kenneth Branagh when it first came out. She was in America with Penny and me. And uh, at the end, when the chorus, she's going to tell you about the choruses, but the chorus relates at the very end that this conquest of France didn't last very long. And my mother-in-law, sitting beside me, groaned to herself. <laughs> and, and, and I thought, because I've read Churchill, right, and Shakespeare, and I thought, no, it was never meant to rule France. Uh, but she, she, you know, the greatness of her country was important to her. And that shows that those, uh, those emotions live down through generations. Very deep, very deep. So tell us about the chorus, Stephen Smith. Well, um, this play is diff- Each of the plays has its own character. So Richard II is all in poetry. The Henry IV plays are a mixture of prose and verse. And when you get to Henry V, you actually have this chorus that guides your experience of the play and kind of fires you up from beginning to end. In the Branagh film, I believe it's Derek Jack and me, I may be misremembering that, but he really integrates the chorus into the um, film very effectively. And so it's sort of this thrilling, you know, apparently pro-Hal voice, um, but it's, like everything in Shakespeare, a little more subtle than that. So the chorus is a, you know, begins with, oh, for a muse of fire, exclamation point. Wow. It, that, it's that kind of voice. But the chorus calls him Caesar, Alexander, Mercury, you, your notes said that. I'm not sure these are all great things for a king of England to be called. <laughs> well, welcome to Shakespeare, right? So he, this is how he rolls as an artist. You have Hal. We're supposed to judge Hal, right? And then we have him compared to all of these figures. You know, just take three of them. A conquering Caesar, another Alexander, or the mirror of all Christian kings. And if you teach students, and you just wait for a moment after pointing that out, <laughs> raise his or her hand and say, well, which is it? Which is it? You can't be those three things. <laughs> so that that's pretty good. Let, let's make sure we get to the tennis balls, all right? Because I think this is amusing. Yeah, well, I mean, when we begin to play... Um, two churchmen are speaking, and these opening scenes are very important for the whole play, even though sometimes they're cut. Um, the churchmen wonder over Hal's transformation, as we all have been. They mention there's a bill in Parliament against the church. They've been talking to the king, and they've decided to make the king a big offer of cash, and the king is considering it. And this is in the background of the, the opening scene. That when, when Henry enters, he wants to know from the church, may I with right and conscience make this claim to the throne of France? May, may I go invade France and take what's rightfully mine? And after a long and kind of somewhat torturous explanation, the answer is yes, sir, he can. And, um, and Hal kind of reveals his next um, what plot in the play, which is to rise like the sun over France become the king of France. So 
that's how we, we were, we're used to him at this point. But unfortunately for the French, they decide to insult the young king by sending him tennis balls, my liege, um, because he's a young guy. He's vain. Here, go play with some tennis balls. You're Is there play. any explanation for a needless provocation? Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're just trying to insult. You know, it's, they're showing that they have slight regard for him. And they're not, they're not worried about uh, him as a king or as a leader. And boy, does it backfire because Hal revs the engines again. Those tennis balls set him off. And he says he's going to play such a match of tennis in France that the whole country is going to mourn over it. And, and then he says, I'm going to rouse me in my throne of France. And so he is ticked off. He's fired up. And the war is upon England and France. And, and again, this is occurring during Elizabeth's reign which is a reign of constant threat and war, if I correctly remember. I don't know what year this comes out or what's going on, but I imagine an English audience likes that. Oh, yeah. It, uh, so uh, my favorite production of this is Kenneth Branagh for two reasons. One is it shows the squalor of the war, the difficulty of the, of the English living in disease and bad weather in France, and the other is this particular scene. Uh, Steve, by the way, has absorbed so much Shakespeare that he's quoting it automatically. Yes. He said, uh, slight regard. Yes. Right? Well, the, uh, uh, when the Herald, who's played in this really great production by Brian Blessed, comes in in this shining silver armor to, to confront the king of France, who's played by Paul Schofield. It was really great. Played Thomas More, and and he he uh, and he lectures him. And uh, wait, we got to go, don't we? Yeah, we do. Come back. We'll get it when we come back. Don't go anywhere, America. The Hillsdale Dialogue rolls along. Don't go anywhere. happens anywhere you'll hear it here first when Hugh Hewitt continues welcome back America I'm Hugh Hewitt the Hillsdale dialogue is underway all things Hillsdale are collected at hillsdale.edu all of the dialogues are at the iTunes page that collects them just google Hillsdale dialogue or Hugh4Hillsdale.com. Uh, Dr. Arm, when we went to break, you were talking about... So, this herald comes in to the King of France, and the Dauphin is there, right? And he's this cocky boy. And uh, he, uh, uh, the King of France says, what do you want? And he says, what does Henry want? And he says, he's coming for your throne and your kingdom. And if you hide it in your heart, there he will rake for it. Uh, he says... He comes in thunder and earthquake like a Jove, that if requiring fail, he will compel. See, it's very, it's a very powerful thing. And uh, and then he says, uh, the king says anything else, and uh, and the herald says, uh, no, unless my lord Dauphin is here. And then the Dauphin says, I stand here for the Dauphin. And and uh, then he says. Uh, uh, scorn. He, he, he's what? What has 
what have you for the Dauphin? And the, and the uh, Herald says, scorn and defiance, slight regard, contempt. <laughs> and anything, it's, it's, you know, and uh, it's just, you know, it's just, it's just awesome, right? Scorn and defiance, uh, light. Rig- I got to go memorize that because I can use that with collars. Uh, <laughs> so, so, so Stephen Smith, I love in this in your outline. He's taken the East Cheapers with him, which is a, a a small lesson, a large lesson. The large lesson is you can't you can't leave your past behind when you're going to rule. Your, your political past is going to come with you. But Falstaff kicks the butt, bucket. That's sad. Yeah, Falstaff, um, Shakespeare had promised that he would uh, depict Falstaff in this play, but actually he dies off stage and his death is just related to us. Um, we're told he cries out against sack, against wine, and against women. <laughs> so he, he, he dies uh, repentant. And nobody wants him to die because he's very funny. And one of the, one of the best jokes of Falstaff is his last one. Uh, he's, he's asked, you know, be of good cheer, Sir John. Don't, don't talk of dying. Be of good cheer. And he responds, God, 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 three or four times. And then he, and then he dies. Oh. So that is in the play. Um, and it's, for many readers, one of the, the most emotionally powerful speeches in the play is the death of Falstaff. Now, in the East Cheapers, um, they're going to follow Hal to war, but this whole plot line brings up a big issue in the Henriad, which is what effect does a leader have on his followers? And they follow him. Um, they, they shared you know, life together in East Cheap, misadventures and all this stuff that was going on down there. And when they go to France, they do not conduct themselves as Hal does. Hal conducts himself as the king. They kind of do their old thing, which includes theft, things like that. And indeed, uh, one of them is hung. So it's, it's sort of difficulty that Shakespeare is showing. He's wondering, are, are these people better for having been with Hal? Um, how much are they responsible for their own um, their own character, their own decisions? It's, it's a really important part of the play. I had a great paper out in D.C. on this, and the, the student wrote that Hal can do things in the play that these other characters simply can't do. Like, he can hang out in East Cheap. He can rise like the sun in triumph. But other people, they, they can't do what Hal can do. And then they're, they're actually... Um, not helped by his leadership. Well, on St. Crispin's Day, though, they get to recall. Don't the old yeah. men get to recall? Isn't that what every veteran gets to do? Well, that's the thing. So there's not East Chief. They're not the only people in Hal's army. They're the kind of ordinary uh, part of his army. Then there are the, the other leaders. And so yeah, the play just has this double quality, right, where you have an attractive, positive teaching, and then you have a sort of troubling teaching as well. Both when the both. fetching Mrs. Hewitt went on a carrier for a visit, the old salt chief told her that the young sailors complain bitterly every day of their service, and then when they're old men, they'll say it's the best years of their life. <laughs> uh, and I just, I, I pass that along. I think they do get something out of it. We will come back to that in a second. Henry V is on the table for the Hillsdale Dialogue. Dr. R and Dean Smith will be right back. Don't go anywhere. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. 
You're in the middle of a non-stop action-packed information blitz. The Hugh Hewitt Show is coming right back.